Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Condemnation after homeless migrants are threatened in a reported attack on their makeshift camp in West Dublin. I mean, I've worked in the area of migration for decades. I'm more worried now than I've ever really been in terms of safety of people who come to our shores looking for protection. Later, will guard of body cameras mean more Big Brother-style surveillance? We debate the issue. And we hear one young woman's horrific story of her tummy tuck surgery abroad. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. And have your say in our nightly interactive poll. First tonight, the government has strongly condemned a reported attack on a makeshift migrant camp in Dublin at the weekend. During the incident, those living there were reportedly threatened by an armed group, some of whom had dogs. The Taoiseach has asked Gardaí for more information on the incident. Meanwhile, the UN's refugee agency says it's concerned at recent developments. We're seeing scenes that uh, we've never seen before in Ireland. Uh, we heard the Garda representative organization coming out in the last few days saying that they're concerned. It does seem that some people are, are using uh, protests and, and genuine concerns that people in the community may have as cover uh, for violence, for intimidation uh, and hatred. Well, I'm joined on my panel tonight by Senator Garrett Ahern of Fine Gael, former TD and socialist activist with Coppinger, executive editor of the Irish Daily Mail, John Lee, Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, and Jimmy O'Gorman from Lismore Heritage Centre in County Waterford. Now, we did ask the main opposition parties for a spokesperson tonight, but nobody was available to us. So, John, I'm going to come to you first, because as we said there at the beginning, look, there's been widespread condemnation of this uh, attack at this sort of small tented village in, in Ashtown in, in Dublin. But the commentary, I suppose, online around this camp, notwithstanding the attack, has been very worrying and even more worrying because there have been reports of further camps like this uh, around Dublin and concerns that they themselves might become targets. Um, I, I suppose it's the very nature of these camps that they, they seem to be from... Out, they're outside the official uh, umbrella. I, I must say my news organisation has found difficulties today in getting exact details of what happened at that... Uh, at this, this camp. So, you know, I, I won't involve myself in speculation about what happened there and who was to blame and everything else because we, we frankly don't know. The Gardaí have, have only told us officially that there were, no, they, there were no complaints officially made to them. Now, I, I'm not detracting from the seriousness of it because I think of the nature of people if they're outside officialdom 
they may be concerned about approaching, approaching officials. So I, I speak from, from that position. But clearly something has happened and clearly... Because there you, were individuals living in these tents. Oh, absolutely. They are all gone now today. Absolutely. And I heard Kitty Holland and, and Ruth Coppinger here uh, on the radio this morning and, and we all understand the seriousness, seriousness of it. And I was also struck by um, a former Assistant Commissioner Pat Leahy today speaking in detail about, the, about this. And certainly as a very, very exper- experienced police officer, he stressed that there is something different going on right now when it comes to protests. But he also outlined the difficulties that Gardaí have in dealing with protesters because there isn't much law, because we haven't really experienced this in the past, there isn't much law governing an awful lot of this. And we, we, we keep looking back to the Constitution, which says there, there is a right, once no one is carrying weapons or anything of a dangerous nature like that, to assembly and protest. So the guards, he said, he's the expert, are inhibited in what they can do. So I and think in terms of this camp itself, uh, John, these were homeless individuals, we believe. I can only go on the reports in the Irish Times. Um, and as I say, th- there was difficulty today for, for a lot of us in trying to f- figure out what exactly had gone on there because of the nature of the assembly. But that seems to be the case, that people um, of different nationalities were staying here in, in, in conditions that were not very good at all, according to the eyewitnesses. They didn't have um, proper cover or our facilities on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. But some of them did speak to the media. This is quite important, right? I don't know why you're saying there's a difficulty in knowing what happened. Um, A a reputable journalist was on the scene when the incident happened. Now, the reason I think this is important is an attempt now online by Gripped and some of these, you know, right-wing, far-right sources to say nothing happened. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what they're saying. They're just questioning some of the narrative around what happened at this camp. uh, Well, one of the the victims came to the protest that we held in Ashtown tonight and some of our supporters spoke to him. The incident did happen. And I think it's very important that established journalists would, would say that. So Kitty Holland has already spoken in depth. So essentially what happened is that these men were staying there for at least seven months. Many of them are working. The man, for example, I spoke to tonight, used to work, was a mandate, a member of Mandate Trade Union. You know, these are workers who have fallen on hard times. Um, and there's, there's also camps near me that there's Irish couples in, in Blanchardstown, along the Talca Valley. And what the difference here was that these weren't Irish. So uh, somebody spotted them and decided to video them. And that invited online racial abuse. And these men were attacked with a group with dogs, a baseball bat, sticks, one of them wearing a balaclava. So I think it's important to assess, to put those facts out there. Okay. And the community in Ashtown responded tonight with a very important solidarity protest. And we and have And you said there was about 300 people way. turned out to that protest Absolutely. this Absolutely. This evening. is a multi-ethnic, you know, diverse community, young, uh, and, and does not want this in their name because this was a small <coughs> gang of racist thugs. Do you think, do you think is there a danger here, Ruth, that we over-exaggerate sort of this anti-immigrant sentiment that we're seeing now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the far right, is, it's, it's a serious issue. So I want, just to put it in context, yes, they do represent a tiny number. Uh, but the perfect storm has been created for the far right to grow. I mean, we've come through a global pandemic which hit so many people, 
you know, in so many different ways. We have a, a massive housing crisis for over a decade, which the established parties have failed to address. They've left all And we see this, don't we? We see this control. at the weekend or last Friday. And we see the, the housing crisis. figures. And then, the you have, figures yeah, and then you have a war where people are being brought in very, very rightly. I think the majority of people in Ireland want to accommodate people. But there is a problem. And I would have said this on this show before, because people who are downtrodden and, and suffering from the housing crisis look and see the government is bending over backwards to accommodate people from other countries when they did nothing for us. And there's an element of that. But there's an element also the far right aren't just using the housing crisis. They're also stirring up okay. the most base and backward association of unvetted men with rape and sexual abuse. And I think we really have to challenge that. Do you see this, Liam Herrick, as a, as a serious escalation in terms of anti-immigrant sentiments in the country? Well, I think we need to separate out a couple of different things, Kira. I mean, what we're talking about in terms of this incident and other incidents as well are crime. They're serious crime. And if you listen to the Garda Commissioner over the last couple of weeks, he's talking about an increased uh, concern on the part of the guards about criminality around some of these protests. Mm -hmm. So we can have a conversation about the constitutional right to protest and all the rest of it, and we can have a conversation about community concerns. But crime is crime, and we need to deal with those criminal elements. And we also need to send out a very clear message that if there is serious criminality associated with some of the groups that are opposing refugees in some areas as well, then anybody that associates with those groups or those demonstrations can't say they didn't know that there is a criminal dimension going on. Now, there's a separate okay, question. Separate. But there are separate protests, there are. are there not? There are. But, I mean, there's been protests in Finglas recently where there was threats voiced, or serious violence against guards, against politicians, against members of the community. So these are serious matters that deserve a serious criminal justice response. Okay, I want to speak to you, Jimmy, because there was a protest yesterday in Lismore in County Waterford, a peaceful protest, 200 local people. I think it has been um, verified that it was mainly local people who were voicing their concerns over the fact that their local hotel was being turned into a direct provision centre. What are they opposed to, Jimmy? What they are opposed to, Kira, straight away could I clarify here and now, that Lismore is a most welcoming town and has been for centuries. And over the years, we have welcomed all sects, all creeds and people from all countries. A lot of those people have integrated into the town and some of them are playing a very important role in the different volunteer groups in the town. And can I say already that we have about 35 to 40 refugees and Ukrainians in the town. But they're living in Lismore at the moment. In Lismore at the moment. And they are living in maybe private houses and other places that were available. And to say, I, uh, I'm not too happy with the word protest because this is not a protest against anybody coming into our town. We are just, have a strong feeling. Lismore is a heritage town, number one. And number two, it depends on tourists. So, so what's the opposition here? Because this is the a opposition, hotel the, uh, that very, has been vacant. This, very this, clearly, here, I can, I can very... It's not going to be used as a direct I can very center. easily explain. There is no opposition. I want to make that very clear. There is no opposition to anybody coming into Lismore. I am here for two reasons tonight. Number one is the lack of communication and the lack of information on this very serious, serious project, one of the biggest to take place in Lismore. There are 
when the final numbers are in that were to come into Lismore Hotel, it would be about 120, 15 to 120. The population of Lismore is roughly 1,350, 400 people, 1,400 people. So that's a tenth of the population is going to land into a town without anybody being told anything about it until about 10 days ago. But what is we, those, if you had been told three weeks ago, four weeks ago, six weeks ago, let's say, yes. that this hotel, this local hotel in this moor, was going to be turned into a direct provision centre, if you had been given more notice and more communication, but ultimately the result being the same, that the hotel would become a direct provision centre, would you still have an issue with it? The result, I think, wouldn't be the same. Because if we were allowed, as people who know the situation and the structure of the town, we would have been well able to sit down with people, I don't mind, but a representative of the government, somebody from the top, to come down and say, look, this is what's happening. I know straight away that Should I... Should this hotel be allowed uh, to become pardon, a direct provision uh, centre? can I me? just finish, please? I have no bother in taking the doors to five or six suitable places that could be suited. But the hotel is in the centre of the town, on the main street. And you're going to put 120 people into that. And at the moment, I can tell you here and now, that the hotel at the moment is just a building site. The scaffolding is up outside it. It isn't ready to, to move into it. And I wonder how is it with, with planning, and I wonder how is it with fire chiefs uh, summing up of the whole thing. Okay. Because okay. when no, you I, see... I, I, when you by see, all accounts, we've been told that it is suitable accommodation. <laughs> I just want to go back to the issue about whether or not people are right and have a right to protest, although I know you say that's not what they're no, doing. No, it's but not. 200 people gathering saying, uh, Gareth, this hotel is not appropriate accommodation. This hotel is needed for tourists. This is a heritage town. People need to have somewhere to stay. Um, we need it to support the local economy here. Do not use this hotel as a direct provision centre at the moment. Are they right? Yeah, and I think this is a good example of two different types of protests that we have. We have someone like Jimmy who's got genuine concerns about the town of Lismore, and then we have different protests that we've seen uh, last night, uh, that it doesn't matter what sort of communication you'd have with people, they don't want it. Um, obviously, under normal circumstances, communication is really important, and that's what would have normally been done. I know from experiences in Tipperary where people would have been brought into Borisacane or to Turles, um, and there's been good communication, and the community have rallied behind it and supported them, and it's been really positive. But because of the amount of people coming into the country in the last uh, 12 months, that sort of communication just hasn't been at uh, where, it where it was before. And that's because of the numbers coming in. We've 73,000 people coming in looking for accommodation. 53,000 of them are Ukrainian. 20,000 are international so protective. is not, hasn't got the opportunity now to communicate well, with concerned locals. Well, is that what you're well, saying? It, it's, it's not to the same extent, but the challenges we have are greater. Um, so if you, if you compare... But do you appreciate this was what, what, what the local people seem to be saying yesterday? And I listened to you, Jimmy, and I listened to a lot of them on radio today. And what they seem to be saying is we need this hotel to remain as a hotel to keep this small village viable. Yeah, no, and that would be the hope. But the, the hotel wasn't a hotel at the time. It, uh, at the time, it's closed at the moment. There's no sign yet, even though there's hope within Lismore, that it would be a hotel in the future. But that, there's no sign of that happening uh, at the moment. So look, uh, obviously the government... people don't believe that this is a temporary move. Yeah, but obviously the government are under pressure in terms of getting accommodation. We need, we need as many places as possible. Obviously we would like uh, improved communication. Minister Roderick O'Gorman is, tr is trying to do that and the department are trying to do that. But the numbers are, are very, very severe. Had you thought of building houses? 
you know, like seriously, the, the, the root right, of this problem. Yeah, and, and we know that, I suppose, but yeah. I'm just dealing with, with the here and now, um, which is that the government are saying, look, we're under pressure, people are arriving yeah. and we can't build uh, accommodation uh, uh, overnight. Course. Do you accept it takes a while to build houses, yeah. Do you accept, Ruth Coppinger, the concerns raised by people like Jimmy and, and people in Lismore and other places around Ireland, it's not just Lismore, um, about the loss of local facilities to accommodate refugees? Well, I don't know Lismore, obviously, so it's very difficult for me to comment. But I could appreciate that many towns may feel that they can't take in such an influx. But the key issue, the reason I said about building houses, of course, we have to acquire accommodation. This is a war situation. But the government isn't building houses. Fingal County Council, where this... this year. Oh, yeah. Can I just finish? Fingal County Council, which is the big, second biggest local authority in, in the state didn't build one single house of its own last year. And then we have people in tented villages uh, along the Tolka Valley. And we have people who contact me on a daily basis in dire situation. That hasn't changed as a policy of the government. They're putting all of their faith in private uh, enterprise. And in fairness, we should acquire. In, in fairness, I do think the government, uh, Joe Bryan, recognised today that relying on private enterprise to provide accommodation to refugees is not the solution. No, it's However, not. it but, seems but, to be the only short-term solution. But just solution. to be clear, like, the, the demand on housing is increasing year on year. You know, we, we have 73,000 people in at the moment, 53,000 Ukrainians, 20,000 international protecting, uh, protective applicants. That's up from 7,500 last year. We have 30,000 extra Irish people coming home. You'll see in the report today that there was uh, that we have the fastest growing economy in Europe at 12.2%. You'd expect more Irish people will come home because of that. The demand on housing is great is, is much greater uh, than one would hope. But and that's the supply because is way below where it needs to be. A number of factors. Okay, I just want to ask Here you, agree, uh, Jimmy. Could I make a point? You can. Please. Is that it's ironic in a way that over the weekend Lismore Heritage Centre were in Dublin promoting nationwide and worldwide Lismore as a heritage and a town to come to visit for tourists. Now they can... What, what's the point in advertising when there's going to be no hotel? People in... But that the, hotel... Uh, sorry, 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 sorry Kira, just to be clear, uh, that I hotel just, wasn't available to tourists. It was closed. It, it, so is there not I, something... Can, sorry, can I just, just ask you a question. Can, is there something... And, and I'll give you a, a chance to, to, to respond to this. Is there something which I've heard suggested today, morally wrong, with leaving a hotel which wasn't being used empty while people are homeless or in need of accommodation. I'd agree with you that that would be, but that's not the case if there was proper communication and, and information on it. I am telling you here now that there are at least four or five places in Lismore that could provide this, this uh, accommodation and there wouldn't be 120 people in together in a small building. And we could still be there. But to have to advertise yesterday or over the weekend and now to find that there's no hotel. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, the hotel has been idle for five or six years. But there are also people in Lismore who improved their facilities and people who bought new businesses okay, like on the hope that Lismore was going to have a hotel and people would be coming okay, into the can town. can you just respond to that briefly? Yeah, so there's no guarantee uh, the hotel in Lismore would be in a hotel over the next six months, 12, 12 months. Like, the department would work with the local authority in Waterford in terms of, uh, in terms of deciding places where 
uh, refugees could go. Yeah. That conversation would have happened between the department and the local authority of where in Lismore uh, they would be able to prioritise. Obviously, so the you feel that they would have exhausted any other opportunities? Well, well I suspect I suspect that would certainly happen. Uh, most local authorities would have a very good understanding yeah. of, of what's Sorry. possible and what's not possible. What, what people might hope for and individuals in Lismore might hope for, and I know the area quite well because I'm close to it, uh, but sometimes what you hope for actually isn't possible. Okay, the local me... authority would play a key role here. Okay, Liam. I mean, I think everybody accepts how difficult it is. You know, we're in a very difficult situation for all the reasons that Garrett set out, but we're a year in and the government strategy is still overly reliant on hotels. And, and the, it's two difficulties in that. First of all, it concentrates the burden predominantly for uh, housing in tourist areas, especially on the West Coast. And also now it's seasonal, so we're coming into a real crisis in the spring and the summer. So there has been a year to come up with slightly better plans and that hasn't happened. In the next three to four months, the government needs to come out with something very substantial about short-term temporary housing. And we're not seeing very encouraging signs from that. And I think that's in every section of society, those that are working with refugees and migrants and those communities right. that might be receiving them, the concern is they don't see the plan that is convincing to them. OK, just well, I want to leave just the last question uh, to Jimmy because he's, he's leaving us after this uh, panel. If people are moved into this now direct provision centre, what will people in Lismore do? Well, it's too late then. It's too late if they've moved in. You know, we're trying to... This is the most peace. Yesterday there was over 300 people in Lismore. The most peace, it wasn't a protest. It was a gathering of people that were saying, look, why take the hotel from us? We had an opportunity of getting the hotel back up and running. We were promised in the early stages that it was going to be there for commercial use and the people were going to be going back into the town again. People invested a lot of money All right. to improve their premises and to do... John, this is going to... Sorry to cut across, I'm just conscious of This is going to be a, an even bigger issue for the government in the coming months, given the fact that so many of these hotel contracts are coming to an end. Yeah, I do know this more, and it's the kind of place that one would um, hope to get away from the rat race. My wife is from Waterford, so it's, it's a rather secluded but beautiful spot. Um, we seem to be arguing, unfortunately, with communities over housing 127 people here and there, where... It's projected that 100,000 people will, will seek refuge from Ukraine on top of those seeking refuge. And the government has not come up with a mass housing solution to that in, as a few panellists have said, the space of a year. And they don't look anywhere, anywhere near it. And I'll go back. To the, we were at the airport when refugees first started arriving from Ukraine. And I asked Leo Varadkar there, who was tarnished at the time, is this the opportunity to do something dramatic with the housing crisis? And in his endearingly frank way, he said, well, if there was something dramatic we could have done with the housing crisis, we We'd would have, have done, done it already. Already. So. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now. My thanks uh, to Jimmy. The rest of the panel is staying with me. Next, Garda body cams. Are we heading towards more surveillance on us all? Stay with us. reminder about our nightly live interactive poll. 
which will allow you to get involved in the show and tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight we're asking, do you support the introduction of body cameras for Gardaí on the Beat? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code there on your screen. My panel is still here with me. Senator Garrett Heron of Fine Gael, former TD and socialist activist Ruth Coppinger, executive editor of the Irish Daily Mail, John Lee, and Liam Herrick, executive director of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. But first, uh, to a story that was broken in the Mail on Sunday yesterday about an apparent secret plan to stop nursing home refunds. Uh, John Lee, you might give people just a very brief background to this story. It's a very long running story, as in it, it, it really started 50 years ago. But bring it up to, say, around 2009, the state accepted that it, it had been illegally charging um, uh, thousands of... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. People for for the use of sta- of state and public run. Uh, nursing homes. It, it, the Fair Deal scheme, which a lot of your viewers will be familiar with, then came into operation. But there so were... These are people who would have been entitled to stay in a public nursing home. There was no space, and so they had to go into a private nursing home. Then, from 2009 on, there, were, there, were, um, there, there was a group of people who would have been entitled to have public spaces in public nursing homes, couldn't obtain them, and then paid private fees to... Um, put their loved ones, often in a very quick um, situation, often in a very traumatic situation, into, into nursing homes. The state understood that they were now liable to um, reimburse these people. Um, and in the instances where people had died, their estates. Uh, we have, and I have it here tonight, a, a, a memo which was brought to Cabinet in, tw- in 2011 with the new government then which was headed by Leo um, uh, Enda Kenny, who was the Taoiseach, and the Minister for Health, uh, uh, James Riley, where they put together a plan to limit the state's exposure to huge costs, uh, estimated on the one side, 5 billion for, the pu- for those who would seek recompense in the public sector, 
and then the private fees could be up to another 7 billion. That's contained in the document. That's not contested. The state then had to continue that it, it very, I'll I, 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 I be careful with my language here, but a, a very strong legal, legalised um, effort to contain the state's exposure. That essentially means pay as little money as possible to those people who shelled out of their private funds. And there was no question, pay. John, about whether or not these people were entitled to this. Absolutely none. And, I mean, and that wasn't really up for debate. What the state also accepted was that it had no real legal argument. So what they would do would, would be let people, by whatever way they wanted, to find out they were actually entitled to this, go and get themselves a legal team. And we know as journalists, probably it's, it's easier for us to deal with um, legal, legal people. Often a lot of ordinary individuals don't like doing that and they can't afford it. They would then get themselves a legal team and sue the state. The state would do, use their lawyers then, and this is again, is all contained in memos, to contest that and argue that as long as they possibly could until it came to the point where it would have to go to court and then they would immediately set, settle. Okay, so this memo was from 2011, 2011. and we know we saw it. But the question today is, who else was aware of this, not necessarily the memo itself, but was aware of this policy, this strategy? Now, the Taoiseach today, Leo Vradkar was speaking on News Talk, he said, although he was Minister for Health at one stage, he wasn't uh, aware of this memo. That's what he said, and that the story is more complicated than perhaps your newspaper has presented it. Um, Leo Varadkar said what he said. I, I spoke to other sources in government today and there was a great difficulty in obtaining documents. That's what they said to me. We have the documents and the memo that we're publishing tomorrow, an excerpt of, says that in May 2016, very close to the time that Leo Varadkar was to leave the department in a cabinet reshuffle, there was a new Taoiseach appointed, Linda Kenny again, he was informed of this, of this, um, of this policy. Further than that, he was, he was active in it. And what the memo said was, and I won't go into all the legalese, was it has been agreed by the minister and the attorney general that settlements would, would be made, I paraphrase that, it's a bit legalistic, right. in the range of 40 to 60% of the claim, which means we would settle. So he's, he is there in black and white, Leo Varadkar, in 2016 of being informed of that. Then we also will publish excerpt from a memo that the following year, the new Minister for Health, Simon Harris, and his, his uh, Minister for State, Helen McEntee, were also uh, informed of this practice of trying to inhibit the, the, uh, and, and contain the state's exposure in paying people who were entitled to this money. And I tell you, I've gone through a lot of government do documents in my 25-year 25, 25 career. Michael O'Farrell obtained this, our, uh, our investigations editor, and I was shocked by the cold, callous behaviour of not of individuals, but of the system, of the state, of civil servants and politicians over a period of 50 years in trying to stop people getting okay. money they were entitled to for, and who had paid that money to put people at a, in a very traumatic situation. And they've been charged into, when they shouldn't have been and they, and charged. It would seem successive, successive governments admitted that this was not legal. It would seem that gov the government have really serious questions to answer here. 
Yeah, well, I suppose, first of all, we don't have all the facts. Um, we have an article, we have a whistleblower. No, I can show you, uh, Gareth, well, Gareth, I yeah, can no, show you the facts. We have, yeah. I can show you the memo. You can take that away, which is nice. I haven't so seen, please I haven't don't, seen it beforehand. Well, you know, I haven't seen you, you're it. a government representative. You should go and get documents that are that are available in government. And I can give you those documents tonight. it's an article you said you have for tomorrow. I'd hardly see it already. The documents have been available to the state. It's by important. a whistleblower. Okay, just let for an it's, it's, it's important to remember this dates back to the 1970s up until 2005. The Taoiseach has taken it seriously. That's why he has the attorney general. He's asked the attorney general to look into it. Uh, he said himself today that that he wasn't involved in devising um, any any well, I, I, any legal strategy clear, that would prevent payments. It's not about whether he devised the strategy. It's about who was aware. No, were they no, aware but, but of he, the strategy? No, but he did say that himself today. Uh, the, the important thing is, and I understand from this evening, that the Dáil Business Committee have agreed to, to, to have a special debate on this next week. And I think that's the correct form and platform to have it. Um, uh, and then we can hopefully get all the facts uh, f from this story. OK, I just want to move on to uh, another story we want to cover on the programme this evening, and that's that Gardaí across the country are to get body cameras by the end of the year following a series of high-profile attacks on members in their line of work. However, civil liberties groups have expressed concern about the move. Uh, that's you, Liam. I mean, I've heard the Garda Commissioner saying that we need body cams for members in this country, but this particular legislation does go further than that. There's even uh, questions about whether or not Garda dogs would be wearing yeah. um, uh, spy cameras, as they're being called, certainly Garda helicopters, drones, but the guards say that they need this. They need this um, for their work, and it's used in other countries. Why are you concerned? Well, this goes back here about five years now. The Commission of the Future Policing recommended body cameras for the guards, and the argument in favour of them is that would reduce the amount of attacks on guards, and it would reduce the amount of violence by the guards on members of the public. This was the argument in the United States, where there was a lot of shootings of members of the public by the police there. That's the justification. And if... The technology did what it claims it will do, we'd support it. The difficulty we have is that when you look over a long period on the countries that it has been enforced, the jury is out on whether there's actually real benefits to be derived from it. So if there's is that not, not a, is that not a policing issue? That's a policing concern whether or not it works. It or is. Not. But if you don't have the policing justification for it, then the price in terms of the actual cash price of buying an expensive technology and the downside in terms of increasing levels of surveillance can't be justified. So, I mean, what we see with this kind of technology is that the concern from the surveillance perspective is that it's going to increase the amount of filming of the public going about their daily lives by Angarda Shiakona that, that increases the risk that it, film will be shared inappropriately. It also means that there can be chilling effect on protests and strikes and so on. And we've seen plenty of examples from other jurisdictions of where this has been used inappropriately. So, I think our suggestion at this point in time, the government's very committed to go ahead. We have our concerns. We're not convinced. At the very least, commit to a pilot project. Let's see how it plays in the field before we roll it out. But I mean, the bill where this is coming in, and it's going to be debated at second stage on Wednesday, it contains a whole lot of other you know, concerning issues as well, including a suggested proposal for facial recognition technology. And last week, from nowhere, the Garda Commissioner talked about the body-worn cameras being equipped with facial recognition technology, a wholly new suggestion. So there's, a, there's a lot you, going on. You don't think these work, Gart? There's no. no evidence that what they are meant to do actually will happen, which is sort of a, you know, a reduction in well, police force being used. 
Well, that, that's not true. What, 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 what I said was that the jury was out in it, which, which what means uh, from, the, uh, from the research we've done is that it actually has been quite successful in, in, in some European countries. In my view, it's been long overdue. Um, it, it, it's happening in Ireland already. On the Lewis, security police wear body cams, uh, security outside nightclubs wear body cams, cyclists wear body cams. Um, it's, it's another layer of protection for Gardaí uh, who need it. We're a government who are trying to build stronger, safer communities right across the country. This is one layer of protecting Gardaí who need that protection so they can and protect Lemus communities. Let's just say there that it is open to abuse and it has been abused in other countries. Well, it, like that might be to that, might, that? that might be a case to a, to, to a small extent, but that doesn't mean you should introduce something that actually protects communities. Uh, you know, this is giving one layer of protection to Gardaí. We've been talking earlier on about how, um, you know, the far right and, and certain small cohorts of people are attacking uh, Gardaí. Instead of having the cameras on Gardaí, we should have Gardaí having cameras on the individuals who were intimidating him and attacking the, them. I think the, that's the a context. fair uh, and right thing to do for, for people who are serving the state. OK, did that Ruth back in there? Yeah, well, what's, yeah, what's I mean, the, the thing about the far right, actually, there's been very little. Um, of monitoring of the far right by the Gardaí, if you compare the actions to the Debenhams pickets, for example, which I, I myself was lifted off by Gardaí, um, you know, the amount of attention that went into that in comparison to the far right is incredible. That point needs to be registered. Um, I think there's no evidence that it puts scrutiny on the police either, because there's been lots of examples in the US where they switch. You see, there's no, no evidence of this, Ruth, because I've I read numerous reports today online that said there was evidence in the US that the use of police violence, for example, was lessened, or the police force was lessened when they started wearing these I body think, cameras. Well, sorry, there's been lots of examples of where the police switched off the cameras. Uh, policing in the US is hardly something now to be held up as an example when you've got a, a hugely racist... Yeah. Uh, but I suppose you know, we're, we're looking at it as a police force that have used these, these cameras, and I think you've quoted yeah. them too as uh, being a force where these cameras have been used and not been effective. Isn't that right, Liam? Th that's right. But, I mean, the, the bigger picture here is that th this legislation is one of three big pieces of legislation the government will be introducing this year for guard reform. Very ambitious, very, very important. And I don't think the priority should be on buying more kit for the guards. The context here is the Data Protection Commission for seven or eight years now has been saying that Angarda Siakana has a very poor record of how it uses the technology it already has, including particularly its use of CCTV. So I think the guards, unfortunately, often tend to turn towards technology as the solution to all of their problems. There's well, a lot the of issues... Could the guards not be trained to counter that problem? Well, what, what the Data Protection Commission has been saying is there's inadequate training of the staff to use the technology they already have. So I think we should be proceeding with caution here. Okay. It's just important to say that the Com Commissioner Harris himself has been on record as requesting this, that it'd be good for Gardaí. Um, and that's, that's what we've done. We follow through on, on, on what the commissioner has asked for. And, and uh, the camera gives further evidence um, uh, for prosecutions for Gardaí. And when, when Ruth talks about the case she had with a, with a Garda, well, a Garda camera there would actually help to verify whether what she said is true or not. OK, let me just look to our poll this evening because we did ask people, um, do they support the introduction of body cameras for Gardaí on the beat? And the result of that poll was 91% in favour and just 9% against. So it seems, Ruth, that the majority of people want to see our Gardaí wearing this. Well, I think there has to be a discussion and a debate. I don't think there has been before the poll, in fairness. But I think there's two issues. The Gardaí were found not to be answering 999 calls, which is a pretty basic requirement of any police service. And these were serious calls, domestic and sexual okay. violence. And I we're think just... another reform is the watchdog 
uh, GSOC okay. in terms of the Gardaí, which is completely inadequate. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there uh, for now. My thanks uh, to my panel this evening, Gareth, Ruth, John and Liam. After the break, uh, one young woman's story of how her tummy tuck surgery abroad went badly wrong. Stay with us. Jade Cooney, who is going to share her story about surgery abroad, and some viewers may find some graphic details in this conversation upsetting. I'm also joined by John Keneally, who is a consultant surgeon from the Matter Hospital in Dublin. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Jade, I want to come to you because you decided to go to Turkey in October last year for surgery. What was the surgery that you were going over for? So I went for a tummy tuck. Well, they call it a mammy makeover, so I also got my biopsy done as well. And why did you decide that you needed this surgery or you wanted this surgery? So two years prior, I did get the gastric sleeve and I lost six stone. So I had all the excess skin and I just couldn't get rid of it. So two years previously, you'd also gone to Turkey? Yes, I went back to Turkey. Um, to have the gastric sleeve? Yeah, the gastric sleeve that I just heard about and family members got it done. So I thought, oh, I'll go there. And had you looked at getting that surgery in Ireland? I did, but it was way too expensive at the time, and it still is, uh, compared to the prices in Turkey. So give me an idea of the prices, the difference. So it's about 16,000 here for the, say, gastric sleeve, versus I think over there it was 3,200. So there's a big difference in the prices. That was flights included. So you flew over two years ago for the gastric sleeve? Yes. And was that surgery successful? Yes, that was, because it was a little keyhole surgery. And other family members had had the surgery as well, is that correct? Yes, loads of my family has. Gone over for gastric surgery? Got gastric surgery and has great success with it. So then you decided to, to go back second time round yeah. for this, as they call it, a mummy makeover, is that yeah, right? Yeah, mummy makeover. So how do they sell this? How do they promote this? So they do it as a package deal. So you get your stomach, your say, upper area and lipo all together for certain prices. So, but everyone gets a different price. I went to a road show where I met a surgeon and mine was 5,000. And I was happy I met the surgeon. I was like, yes, I trust this man. And then that's when I was like, okay, I'll do it. But me being me, I didn't leave it much time after meeting him to say, I'm going. You just really wanted Yeah, if the I surgery. talked too long, I'd, but I'd say, no, I'm not getting it done. So you went over to Turkey yeah. To this clinic, to this, what you thought was this surgeon, and you had, this, you had the surgery. Yeah, so when I got there, they ended up changing the surgeon on me to someone completely different. And then that's when I was like, oh my God. But I still went through with it. Because I thought, I'm here, you might as well get it done. You're at the pen. And did anybody talk you through the risks that might be associated with this no. surgery, with this procedure? Not really. They were just kind of like, oh, well, this could happen, but it's not really going to. So you get all these forms you have to fill out. You have to sign, like, you sign your name, and I've read, understand, and agree, but they don't let you read them. So you don't actually know what you're signing, because there's about five different forms you have to do. And tell me about the moment you woke up after this surgery. Oh, I was shaking in agony. My whole body was shaking, that they were running over. Now, I remember the top half of me stopped shaking for a while, but I remember my legs still going. 
and then I kind of hazed out. And then I remember getting woken up saying, oh, you're going back to your room now. And that's when I was like, oh my God, I was in complete agony and they had to, I had to get out of the bed. And that's when I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Were you there by yourself? I did have a person that was getting a surgery as well, a friend. And I knew, I came back to the room, she's like, what took you so long? Gone? They told me I'd be gone for five to six hours. I was 11 and a half hours gone. And did they tell you anything had gone wrong? No, nothing. I, they were just like, oh, everything's great. Got into the bed, they gave me the painkillers, everything like that. And it was only that two days later that a nurse let slip that said, oh, you needed 10 bags of blood during surgery. I was like, what? Just because I ended up while I was there, needed, while I was in the bed, very sick, three blood transfusions. So I just thought, I, they came in, you look great. I was like, oh, I just think it's all the blood they just gave me. And they were like, no, you needed 10 bags during surgery alone. So how long did they keep you in hospital for when you were over there? And then what happened when you came back to Ireland? So I was in hospital over there for six days, but I was only up out of bed for a day and a half because they told me I was bedridden. And then I was just about trying to learn how to walk. Like you're crouched over in pain and you have uh, the Australian still in you. To, I think two days before they took the top half and then the bottom half one by one out. And then you kind of like have to get adjusted. You're having a corset and you're bent over. And they're like, okay, well, you still have to scrouch down. But I was struggling very bad with pain. I couldn't do it. Couldn't catch me breaths. I just kept coughing. And then the stomach muscles were very sore. But you did fly back to Ireland. You were allowed to fly back to Ireland. Yeah, they told me, they discharged me, gave a letter to say I was fit to fly and said, you're going to go home. And what happened when you got home? So I was in agony no painkillers in. I ended up having to do two flights home. And the rep that was over there didn't book the wheelchair assistance before. So I ha they were like to me, oh, there's no wheelchair assistance. But I ended up crying to the attendants that he gave me, someone took me in a wheelchair to get onto the flight. And you ended up having to attend hospital here when you got home to Ireland. Yeah. And what I were you diagnosed with? So they told me it was, I went to Job Doc in James and he said, oh, you've sepsis and cellulitis. And then he goes, you need to go get swabs now and start antibiotics straight away. So I went straight from Dub Dock, straight into the A&E, and where I sat for 18 hours to go get swabbed and all, um, and get bloods done. Were you worried about yourself? Oh, I was crying. And a poor man was like, yeah, okay. He bought me a packet of snacks while I was crying in A&E. And, because I, I just didn't know what to do. I was shocked. And, and you, ha you were treated for your cellulitis and you were treated for your sepsis, but you are still in recovery, aren't you? Yeah, so they gave me loads of antibiotics. I was on like eight a day for I think like two, three weeks. And then I had to go to a clinic. And they are continuing to treat yeah. you now? Yeah. Your treatment is, is ongoing? Yes. Because you've been left with, with scarring and, and with holes, haven't you? Yeah, I, have, I did have five. I have two now open wounds. Open wounds on your body? Yeah. Um, I just want to go to uh, John Keneally, who is, as I said, a consultant surgeon from the Matter Hospital. What is your reaction to what you've heard there, John? Uh, good evening. Um, uh, I'm afraid uh, Jade's experience, um, it would be nice to say that it's unusual, but um, my colleagues and I across all of the acute hospitals in the country are seeing an increasing number of people coming back from overseas um, uh, treatments of various different types having pretty unpleasant and in many cases life-changing um, complications arising out of surgery provided overseas. 
uh, Jade's experience uh, is, I'm afraid, all too common now. Um, are you surprised that Jade was discharged and was allowed to fly home? Was that medically safe? I, I, I'm not familiar with Jade's case specifically from the outset, but it would be very unusual to suggest to someone that it is safe to get back on a plane while they still have um, drains and wounds. Um, I, I'm a, uh, a liver, pancreas and metabolic surgeon, um, so I don't do abdominoplasty procedures like uh, Jade has described, but I work with some excellent plastics and reconstructive surgeons here across Dublin and the abdominoplasty is a notoriously painful um, procedure to recover from. There are complex wound care issues, as Jade discovered, um, and she has had a very difficult time following her surgery. To suggest that it's okay for someone to get back on a plane within a few days of those procedures is highly irregular, and I don't think any, any right-thinking clinician in this country would recommend it. Uh, what would your advice be to Irish people considering this type of surgery? Because as you say, it's on the increase, and Jed said, look, her first experience had been a positive one. Well, one of my areas of expertise is in particular in relation to the type of surgery Jade and her mum and her sister had first in terms of metabolic or obesity or bariatric surgery. It is notoriously difficult to access in Ireland and as Jade pointed out, it is a lot more expensive here. But while the, the uh, economies might uh, seem sensible, um, the, the, the cost in this country is typically reflects something uh, along the lines of the quality. You know, the, the, the cost for packages for these kind of procedures overseas are less than the cost for the consumable equipment we use in the operating theatre. Right. And we use the best equipment. So our advice is that you take, uh, do as much research as you can. If, if you All can right. get advice from a healthcare professional, but we can't recommend it. Okay, um, we'll have to leave it there. John Keneally, thank you for speaking to us. And Jade, I wish you uh, a speedy recovery and I appreciate you coming in to talk to us this evening. Thank you. Uh, that's it from us on The Tonight Show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, EMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.